Welcome to the WellStack Podcast. I'm your host, Shannon Rossick, the Director of WellStack Content and Solutions. In this episode, I'm joined by Adrian Johnstone, CEO of Practify. Congratulations on the new title, by the way. For context, Practify is a performance optimization platform for the wealth management industry and made the leap into the U.S. markets in 2017. And the topic for this episode is the perfect tech stack a unicorn? Does it even exist? But you know, before we get going, Adrian, I'd love to hear about your background and how Practify ultimately came to be. Awesome, thanks, uh, Shannon. Thank you for the uh, congratulations. It's uh, it's an exciting time. Uh, look, I'm Australian. You can tell from the accent and the <laughs> uh, the story of how Practify came to be kind of feels a little bit typically Australian because it happened over a lunch that spilled into a dinner in a in a wine bar. So, uh, you know, all of the best ideas come to be uh, at the bottom of a bottle, it seems. But of course. Um, we, uh, my my co-founder Glenn and I both worked in the industry from different perspectives. I was a consultant who, who spent a lot of time helping people with, you know, what the future of regulation looked like, where that was going, how, the, how they could balance that with client experience and technology to enable it, all those sorts of good things. Uh, and Glenn was uh, deep into technology and and all things CRM. So uh, we yeah shared too many wines and decided that there must be a business where you could bring wine, client experience, and, and compliance and technology together. I mean, it, it seemed an obvious pairing. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, next time I go wine tasting, I'll definitely keep that in mind. But I appreciate the background, and I do want to dive into our first segment of stats, all folks. So. Let's stay down under a little bit here and stay in Australia because I want to examine the financial services regulatory climates in Australia versus here in the US. You know, Australia is home to the highest number of regulation technology companies in APAC, and there are more than 80 established reg techs making up right close to 65% of the APAC market, which is quite sizable. So what can stateside advisors learn from or prepare for with a look down under, if you will? (laughs) Be careful with those looks down under. (laughs) Uh, Look, I think the the Australian landscape is an interesting one. And and as an Aussie, it's it's always entertaining to me that you see uh, huge, huge tribes of Australian advisors piling on for a study tours. I think they like to call them when they... uh, come to the US to see how firms are going. It's typically, it's a bit of a junket and there's a little bit of talking to some firms along the way. Uh, but of course, I always think that the reverse is better because if the US advisors went down to Australia and took a look at the, the industry, they'd be like, firstly, do I want to stay in this market? And and secondly, how do I ensure that the US uh, landscape does not turn into the Australian one? Because uh, the reason there are so many reg techs uh, down there is that the market is just so over-regulated. Uh, you know, there's there's so much to learn and where self-regulation fails and government steps in, how badly that can go. Uh, Australia is a, a little bit of a, a different industry dynamic or a little bit of a different market dynamic down there. Uh, we have kind of a legislated compulsory retirement savings program that's called superannuation. Uh, and kind of think of it as like a 401k program on steroids, but it is basically taking, I think it's currently 10 and a half percent of your earnings for every income earner in Australia, every uh, salaried income earner. And that is the minimum inflows that go into the industry every year. Uh, And and once they're in, you can't get them out under, except for in uh, some tight exceptions, to 65. So retirement savings is kind of core 
to the industry. But because that money is tied up for so long, the government kind of tries to get helpful and say, how do we make sure no one's doing bad things? And of course, the lion's share of the industry aren't doing bad things. But for the 2% that choose to, then they go pretty catastrophically bad. And as a result, the government steps in with a big heavy hand and, and regulates like crazy. So there's so much regulation to watch that there's without technology, you kind of can't really do it. From a from a US perspective, I think the, the key learning there is just don't fall in the same trap. Make self-regulation work. Uh, you know, be be better because the the flip side is terrifying. Well, that's a good perspective to have. And, you know, in a similar vein, I, I saw a stat that Australia has actually produced 21 of the world's about 920 global tech unicorns. Why has Australia become such a hub for innovation? And, you know, what have you learned from the Australian and U.S. wealth tech markets? Yeah, look, it's uh, it's interesting. If you talk to politicians, they've, of course, generated an environment that fosters innovation. But, uh, you know, I prefer to take the lens that you don't go outside in Australia because everything's trying to kill you. So you stay inside and innovate. So uh, when um, when we look at it, I think Australia is, is firstly, as we were talking about, it, it's, a, it's a bit of a unique financial services economy because of the, the kind of mandated inflows. Uh, but it's also a really long way. You know, and so I know you've been down to Australia. It's, it's not close to anything. Right. Uh, well, it's close to New Zealand, but it's not close to anything important. And so when, when you think about that, uh, from an Australian perspective, you've, you've really got not a big market and you've really got to be pretty innovative in how you kind of run businesses and expand and the sort of problems that you need to solve. So there is a bit of a culture of, well, we're just going to lean into it as a, an Australian saying, of, you know, she'll be right of the night. And, uh, you know, it's, it's we'll just keep going and we'll keep plowing into it until we work out a way to do it. And that that lends itself really well to technology. You know, it, it lends itself to the fail fast and pivot sort of mentality of startups. And it, and it really drives innovation to think, well, I haven't got a lot and I haven't got a huge market to chase. There's not, you know, there's nothing like the the venture capital and private equity scale in Australia. So you, you've got to be pretty bootstrapped and 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 pretty lean and, as a result, you tend to get really creative uh, uh, really fast. And I think for the longest time, a lot of that innovation stayed in Australia. Mm-hmm. It, it didn't get out into the world uh, at large, particularly in the, the fintech space. And it's really only been in maybe the last 10 years that the Australian kind of fintech scene has started to, to kind of leak out into the rest of the world. And uh, from a Practify perspective, we were pretty excited to be able to be part of that and to, in a lot of ways, be a front runner uh, to, to coming to the US because the more traditional path is to the UK first. Yep. Keep it in the Commonwealth and then uh, and then try and make your way back. But we had the good fortune of being able to come straight to the US. So uh, it's been an exciting time. And what propelled that decision? Why was, you know, I, I mentioned in, in my intro that you know 2017 was really when Practify made its foray into the U.S. market. So why was that the right time to to make that entrance? I, like I wish there were a really well thought through story here that was <laughs> like we 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 applied all sorts of great economic models and we you know had a great strategy. Truth be told, we were absolutely hell bent on following the path to the UK. That's what we were going to do. That's where I'd been doing trips to London and assessing the market and product market fit. And a uh, a very, very insightful uh, financial services executive here in the US encountered us in Australia. And uh, she tapped me on the shoulder and was like, no, 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 no. 
you're aiming a little too far to the right. <laughs> let's let's get you to come and talk to a couple of uh, of RIAs in uh, in the US. And so, December of 2017, uh, we took a trip over here, really with a bit of a lens that it was probably going to be a bit of discovery and didn't really know what to expect. And two weeks later, we flew back, having signed our first two clients. With all of the best planning in the world, our our UK operation still doesn't exist. Uh, but we're uh, we're pretty well established here in the U.S. now. Well, I can definitely vouch for that. I see Practify everywhere, and a topic I want to talk to you about is around adoption. You know, we've seen technology adoption among advisors improve, but it's still relatively low. You know, too often a great product is purchased for its productivity promises, but you know, ultimately disappoints upon delivery because it isn't used, which leads to wasted money, which leads to a lot of angry executives and poor ROI. You know, you need buy-in from the CEO and kind of that top-down, and there's obviously lack of training. But in your opinion, what does it take to create adoption around technology? So uh, I, I thought this would be a better answer if it didn't come from my opinion. And we we happen to have our client advisory board meeting yesterday. Uh, so in our client advisory board meeting, we put the question to them and said, what, dri- what drives adoption? Where, how do you guys feel? Where are you at in adoption with Practify? And uh, firstly, it, it felt great because uh, these are some of our most innovative forward-thinking clients. You know, they're typically managing eight, eight and up billion dollars. They're, they're big, complex teams. And universally, they were like adoptions 100%. And we're like, okay, how did, how did you get there? What does that look like? What did it take? And uh, really, it is about looking at the barriers to adoption, understanding them. You know, advisors don't like navigating around a system, clicking in ten different spots to update pieces of information because that's that's what you do when you're taking information from a form and putting it into a system. But it's not what you do in a meeting. It's not a stream of consciousness kind of environment. Uh, and we went really hard into automation and data capture and those kind of tools. And those clients have taken what we built and have gone even further to kind of personalize it to their firm and their way of operating. And so they've really got the data capture flow down to a point now where it's actually desirable to put the information in. And I think that's the lesson with any technology is, you know, too often in a technology firm, it's really easy to think about what, you know, what's optimal from a technology perspective and you forget about the user experience. And, you know, we think about that lots when we think about client data capture, what tool are we going to put in the hand of the end investor and give them to, to play with? But we don't think about it as much when we think about the people in the firm. And so if they hate it, they won't use it. And they'll vote with their feet. And we see it all the time. People, people leave firms because the technology is bad. Oh, a- absolutely. And we're seeing that, you know, clients aren't, aren't leaving their advisors because of portfolio performance per se, but it's really with issues around communication and, and service, right? Yeah. And so, you know, the client experience matters as much as the investment returns, but it certainly feels like the clock is ticking for advisors to adopt digital technology that they need to have to have a thriving practice, right? Totally. I mean, client experience is, is only going to become more prevalent. And, you know, way back at the bottom of that bottle of wine when we were founding the company, that was really one of the key points for us was to to think where is the industry going over time? You know, we could see consumer technology changing in a vastly different way. And it was about experience and personalization, all those kind of things. And, you know, we we roll forward to today and and the wealth management is still so far behind. 
Uh, and we think about personalization and we think about giving the end investor a tool, but we don't think about giving the people in the firm the data and the experience they need to deliver that experience. Right. Because the experience isn't a piece of technology. That's actually a barrier that we put in place because we haven't solved the personalization problem through the data. We stick, hey, here's a piece of technology to put between the client and the advisor uh, instead. You know, it's kind of like outsourcing the experience to the client on a choose your own adventures sort of style. Absolutely. On behalf of wealthmanagement.com, we invite you to join us on May 13th through 16th of Hollywood, Florida for Wealthstack, part of Wealth Management Edge. Our agenda is designed to power a new generation of growth-oriented advisors with the latest innovations and trends in technology strategies. From captivating keynote speakers to interactive workshops, dedicated think tanks, a dynamic exhibit hall, and hands-on demonstrations of cutting-edge technologies, you'll leave with a deep understanding of how to accelerate growth at your practice. Use promo code PODCAST20 to save 20% off your registration. Visit wealthmanagementedge-event.com for more information. And, and another trend I've been following too is really the needs of client households are becoming more and more sophisticated. So how is tech ultimately helping track these kind of increasingly complicated webs of relationships now advisors have to manage? Yeah, it's amazing. You, you think about the way a, a client relationship works with an advice firm, you look at the kind of technology from 10 or 15 years ago when it was, well, just kind of a fancy Rolodex. It was, you know, who do I ring? Well, it's the, you know, the patriarch or the matriarch and they're the contact details I have. And that's, that's all I need. Now, of course, you've got, uh, you know, everything from what are their investment preferences from a direct uh, indexing perspective through to what does their strategy for wealth transition look like and who are the, the, uh, the people further down the line. And then, of course, as we see uh, household wealth grow, what we see is structural complexity come in. There's trusts and philanthropic exercises and companies and all those sorts of things. And if an advisor can't sit in front of a client and, and see that whole landscape, then it's incredibly difficult to sit down at, at, at a, you know, a, a meeting where you're looking at the future of the relationship and justify the fee. It's like, if every time I ask you a question, you have to ask me for details you should already know, then what am I really getting? Right. Uh, and that's where you see advisors who are nervous and they're looking at, well, you know, we need to give them better investment options. It's like, no, you just need to do a better job of servicing. Think about it. If you went and saw, you know, a, a family member, you're like, oh, you've got kids, haven't you? What are they? What are their names again? You know, it's like that would go poorly at Thanksgiving. Uh, you know, <laughs> yes. Yet, we have people who rock into client relationships where they're managing millions of dollars on behalf of the client and they don't know the name of the kids or the whether they bought or sold a company or what houses they own or where they like to summer or winter or you know they, they just don't have this detail and they expect the client to say well that's great here's more money right <laughs> you know, no, it's, it's crazy it no it, it is and and something i've debated too is it really just feels like recently in the US, we've started to put the client at the center of the conversation, which seems a little backwards. And I've talked to other folks in outside markets, UK, Australia, saying you guys have had it backwards for a little while in the US with that. So we're finally coming around to that way of thinking of making it all client centric. <laughs> yeah, look, it's it, it's been a real journey. I think uh, you know, you asked a question before about the differences between Australia and the US. And I, I think the the compulsory nature of savings in Australia necessarily sticks the client at the middle. 
you know, it's, it's, it's sort of there. Here, I think uh, for the longest time, so much of it has been about basically being an investment manager right. on behalf, you know, the outsourced, I'll make the investment decisions. And the, the structure around more holistic advice, you know, what are your wealth protection needs? What are your retirement plans? What does that look like? That's been very fragmented. And increasingly, you know, while that's more fragmented, the client isn't at the center because the investment return is. That's that's the service I provide you. Uh, now that that's all kind of coming together, either through tech because they're doing some of it themselves so they don't need an intermediary or because firms are starting to offer more, it's caused that to coalesce. And as that starts to come together, you start to see more ultra high net worth advice relationships start to feel like multifamily office firms. Mm -hmm. you, know, you start to see that progression and you see that family office servicing model start to slide further down in the, the kind of investable asset pool. And, and, you know, when you start to see that, you start to see more of a, a fee for service model creep in than an asset based fee model creep in because not all the services you provide are linked to assets. Yes, very so you much. Start to see, you start to see this change happen in the industry. And I think the US is is seeing that movement now from that being just something that's at the most elite level and, and starting to come a little more democratized. And even beyond the client experience, technology should really support the rest of the office as much as the advisor. Explain why operations and things like compliance have grown just as complex and vital to a business's health as the delivery of advice? Oh, it's amazing. Uh, I mean, we took a decision uh, a long while back to to turn Practify into a role-based application. So if you're a compliance person, you log in, you see a world as though you're a compliance person. Weirdly enough, uh, in operations, you see, you know, a very task and process-based world. Advisors see a very client-based world. And uh, importantly, it's the same data set. Like everyone is still trying to achieve the same outcome in the same business or should be trying to achieve, achieve the same outcome in the same business. But just as the clients have become more complex, so is the operating environment for the firm. You know, the compliance officer in many firms today still, but increasingly, thankfully, they're moving away from it, has had this view of kind of retrospectively looking at a very narrow subset and really hoping that when the SEC comes docking, they by chance happen to look at that same incredibly narrow subset of client files. Rarely is that the case, weirdly <laughs> enough. Um, but, um, you know, we we understand that it's not possible to look at everything all of the time. The firm would grind to a halt, servicing costs would balloon and, and, and it wouldn't work. So what you need is technology that does that for you. You need the system, and this is where Practify plays a role, you need the system to be looking at every record. You know, where haven't you updated a record? Where is an orphaned client? Where is there stale data or missing data or those sorts of things, instead of the SEC finding them when they come uh, knocking. So, uh, you know, we we like to look at the data and to serve that up to, to the advisor and give them the chance to make it right, but also let compliance know, because if the stick has to get ahead of the carrot, then sometimes that's how it's going to go. So the million dollar question is then, is the perfect tech stack possible or is that still myth? Perfect to whom? It's a little bit like, is the perfect date possible? You know, it's uh, it's 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 kind of all things to all people. So can a firm get a really idealized tech stack for their needs? Absolutely. Would it be perfect to the next firm? Almost certainly not. Uh, and I think that's the key. I think too many advisors and too many practice principals are out there saying, well, I've, I went to T3 
And they told me that I need these four pieces of technology. So I've signed contracts with them now. Uh, now my firm will be magically better. Uh, and of course, the answer is it just won't be. There'll be four bits of siloed technology that don't talk to each other and don't solve a problem. So I think for, for firms to get really serious about what their tech stack is, firstly, they've got to actually spin it on their head from what they want to think about. And they, they want to think, what client experience am I trying to deliver? Because if you, if you start with how do I be more efficient or how do I lower my cost to serve or whatever, that's easy, but you'll almost certainly break the client experience that you think you want to deliver. So start with the client experience, work your way back. You can assemble an exceptionally good tech sector. I mean, look at the, the range of tools that are around for you. The hard part is picking. You know, yes. it's, uh, it's, and, and I think the only way to do that is to understand where you're trying to get to. If you start with what tool do I pick, how do you know? But if you start with what I'm trying to get to, then, uh, then, you know. Well, that's actually a perfect segue into our next segment of of the episode of Ask Us Anything, where I've gone out to the social universe and asked them to submit questions they want answered by you. So we've had a few folks drop into the DMs this week with the first question actually around CRM. So again, perfect topic here. And the question was, why is there an increasing focus on CRMs? Are they indeed becoming the hub, the power center around which client-centric firms organize their tech stack? Uh, If they're not, they should be. Uh, (laughs) So it feels a little self-serving as an answer, but it happens to also be true. I think, Mm -hmm. uh, as we talked about, uh, there's always been this battle. is, is Is it the portfolio system that's the center or is it the CRM that's the center? Uh, and I think increasingly as the service proposition or the value proposition from a firm moves away from what's the market return into how do I provide this more holistic value to you, you need a system that's capable of doing that uh, and, and of nurturing and controlling and driving that that process. And that should be the CRM. But of course, it's, it's going to be more than just a straight up simple CRM. It can't just be a, that Rolodex model. It's got to be able to handle the complexity. Absolutely. So another million dollar question we have, this is a broad one, but uh, somebody did ask, how do you see FinTech evolving in the next three to five years? Uh, I'll put my nostril down, those pants on. Uh, look, <laughs> I, um, uh, it, what, what is certain is it will continue to evolve. I think we'll see things start to coalesce. So what we have at the moment is this, I mean, you look at the, the various FinTech maps uh, that are out there, it is incredible incredibly fragmented. And that's that's because when you're looking for a problem to solve and you're fighting for that space to solve a problem in, you tend to find a very narrow spot. Uh, I think we'll see over the next three to five years, some acquisitions occur and some of those parts start to come together. Uh, and of course, as markets are tight, we'll also see those who maybe don't have the financial resilience start to fall out the bottom. And final question for this segment, where do you see Practify in five to 10 years from now? Uh, dominating the world. No, uh, look, at, <laughs> I, I think uh, where we'll be is right where we are now, which is really centered on how do we power that best possible relationship within clients? Uh, and, and we know we do that by making the firm more, more efficient and effective. We do it by capturing and simplifying all that rich, complex data, and then by orchestrating that integration out to everything else. 
Well, Adrian, I appreciate you being put in the hot seat and being put on the spot in your insightful answers, but we've come to our final and my favorite segment of stack it or whack it, where I'm going to throw out a few technologies. They're not always well tech related. So be warned. And you tell me if they are worth the hype or not. So stack it or whack it. You know, I was going to make a bunch of assumptions about you being Australian and (laughs) about wine and surfing and beaches things like that. But, um, you know, I'll, I'll leave you alone. I promise. I was actually going to ask you about Salesforce as another trick question, if you should stack or whack whack Salesforce. (laughs) So I was like, well, (laughs) maybe not, not be that harsh, but uh, I would like your thoughts on cloud computing and its impact, uh, on wealth management, stack it or whack it. Have we embraced it? Where are we going? (laughs) We are definitely stacking it. Uh, if you're, uh, if your technology is not in the cloud now, you're a long way behind and you need to hurry up uh so cloud computing absolutely stack it all right stack cloud computing and number two internet of things or iot which basically describes the vast universe you know of embedded sensors connecting consumers and companies through the internet you forget sometimes that pretty much everything you interact with every day whether it's smart watches cars refrigerators all are collecting data on our bodies and how we behave. And we're obviously seeing that in wealth management too. And it's ultimately the fuel that's powering AI. Are we oversaturated when it comes to IoT or is it a necessary thing to drive better experiences? I think the answer is yes to both. I think uh, I think it is necessary to drive better experiences and they're an incredibly useful array of of examples, you know, if you look at, at health data being fed real time into to insurers and you know uh, vehicle usage to to you know property and casualty style insurers, all that kind of stuff is incredibly useful. That your smartphone can turn the lights on and and start the coffee machine is really valuable to someone, but maybe not to uh, to everyone. So I think that one's a little more nuanced. There, I I, I put it in the stack at camp. But I'd, I'd have a big caveat over it saying, make sure you know what you want the information for before you start trying to gather it. <laughs> that's fair. All right. So stack it with an asterisk. Got it. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's it. All right, Adrian. Well, I appreciate your time and indulging me on these questions. And it's a pleasure hearing more about Practify and getting to know you a little better. But feel free to tell listeners where they can find out more about you and what you'll be working on at Practify. Absolutely. Look, uh, the website is always the best way, uh, Practify.com. Uh, but uh, follow us on uh, on LinkedIn and other socials as well. We're always uh, pretty active and super happy to share what's there. Well, sounds good. And be sure to like and subscribe to all the WellStack podcasts uh, on all major podcasting platforms and follow all things WellStack on wealthmanagement.com, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And thank you all for tuning in today. 